Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov, where you get a Christian Reconstructionist perspective on the pressing issues of today. This week, Bojidar Marinov is taking a break from the Acts to the Root podcast, but we bring to you his talk at the Abolish Abortion Conference in Texas, titled Optimism, Confidence, and Abolition. Enjoy. All right, I want you to hear this chant. It's a chant. It's a real chant. It's a real excerpt from history that I'm going to say, okay? I'm going to explain it later. And Chad, I'm sorry I need to bring back bad glorious but bad memories, but I'll have to say it. You lost in Vietnam, you're losing here. You lost in Vietnam, you're losing here. Anybody, anybody that has been there and has heard that here in this room? No. Most immigrants, when they come to America, usually get acquainted to it through their immigrant community or through their first job. And uh, the America they first learn about is the America of the trivial, everyday life of the average American. Go to work, get back home, go shopping, watch TV, send your kids to the local government school to get integrated. You know, just normal everyday life in your new country. That's what every, every immigrant does in this country. Learning the habits and the customs of your new neighbors, your neighborhood, adjusting to the demands and the pace of the culture. I've been through it. I know what it is. Learning to take advantage of the benefits. Obviously, no one moves to live in America to uh, uh, to have a uh, to have more trouble, to have more tumultuous life, to have more insecurity, to have more battles. People want to settle down. That's why they moved to another place, right? Um, they want to move. They want to settle down in a quiet, boring, remote, sleepy neighborhood that are that is no that, that is not shown around the world every week on CNN or Fox News. In fact, a Balkan joke of the last twenty years. Anybody who knows the history of the Balkans will know why I'm saying this. A Balkan joke of the last 20 years says that the worst curse you can utter against someone is, may the CNN camera crew never leave your streets. <laughs> so when immigrants come to America, they usually try to find the most boring context in America and fit in it. But not I. My first community in the U.S. were rebels. Rebels who had self-consciously rejected the easy, boring, non-challenging life of the middle-class suburbs had taken on powers greater than themselves. Here in the U.S., most of them suffered for it. The luckiest of them suffered only a loss of a job or public ostracism. Oh, man. Some were brutally tortured on the streets of America by American cops, by Christian cops. There's videos online. I'm not telling you any tales. 
in broad daylight. Some were taken to court and then thrown in prison for months and years. And penalties of millions of dollars were leveled, levied against them, effectively banning them from getting any profitable, any, any, any profitable employment. I don't know why and how, but this was the community I was attracted to. It just goes with my name, I guess. My introduction to America came through activists of Operation Rescue. And since year 2000, when I first met them, was, years, was many years after the activism was over, all I got to do was hear their stories. I wasn't on the streets with them, but I just heard their stories. You know, that spirit of camaraderie that develops between people who have shared, who have sacrificed together, who have sacrificed, who have shared misery and burdens. It usually this camaraderie develops in a military context, but it also develops in ministries like this. Okay? And I, I, have, to, I have to yell so that I can... <clears throat> okay, and it will develop among many of y'all if, if, if it hasn't already, that camaraderie. Of, of you know of shared experiences, shared sacrifices. Uh, during times of activism, it's the emotional fuel that keeps you all together and makes you take the next step and the next one and the next one because you know that the person right next to you will keep making the next steps and the next step and the next step with you, and therefore you're not going to be alone, just you know tagging alone without anybody with you. And that spirit of camaraderie is very important. It's that emotional fuel. Okay. When the battle is over, that, however, and when there is a temporary respite, this camaraderie develops into a telling stories to each other. Okay? Same fellow soldiers telling and retelling each other all their experiences that they all know anyway in exhaustive detail and retelling them to each other. Anybody been through it? <laughs> yes. You know, hey, Bob, remember how Billy Joe fell face first in that mud puddle, huh? And everybody knows it, but everybody's laughing again. And that's over and over and over again. And if there are willing listeners, outsiders, to hear those stories and to listen to those stories, oh, nobody can resist that temptation to tell them all the stories over and over and over again. Well, I was that willing listener with Operation Rescue. I listened to every story told and retold and retold, and I was that willing, uh, and I heard so many of them in such a great detail from the perspective of several participants that now getting older, the line between story and reality is getting rather blurred, and sometimes I think I was there with them. I know what happened, because I've seen it. I, I, I hope this is not just me, because I'll be, I'll be concerned about myself, okay? This one story is one of those that has been preserved in my memory in a great detail, and I can visualize it very vividly. Perhaps because of its dramatic nature, perhaps because it happened to people really close to me, and I can identify with them. It goes back to 1988, when Operation Rescue and Veterans Campaign for Life organized a veteran rescue in Washington, D.C. Only military veterans were allowed to participate in that rescue. A few exceptions were made for sons and daughters of distinguished veterans. The event was planned for November 11th, 1988. Veterans Day with a pro-life rally the day before. Oh, man. Hey, can you tell I got to there? Almost finished. I 
Is that like this is going to be a short video? It's like a short video. <laughs> <laughs> Several abortionists were to be blocked in the D.C. area and also one in Maryland, one in Virginia on that day. When the rescue started, among the ground troops, there were veterans from World War II. I'm not kidding you. World War II from the Korean War. And most of them, the bulk of them were from Vietnam and from other campaigns in the Pacific at the time. These were only veterans. The police in the D.C. area knew about the event and was prepared to take measures against the rescuers. In fact, by 1988, Operation Rescue had developed a strong, solid reputation among cops uh, in, in, in the whole country for their nonviolent and yet extraordinary successful tactics. It was an amazingly successful tactics. It is for this reason in many places police acted with special brutality against the rescuers, a brutality that they didn't never used even against gang members at the time. We all know that in Los Angeles, police did not shy even from openly criminal acts on the streets in broad daylight against rescuers, even uh, uh, under, under the leadership of Bob Vernon, who was at the time uh, an elder at John MacArthur's church, and that happened with the blessings of John MacArthur. That brutality and criminality was due to the helplessness of police to find an antidote to Operation Rescue's tactics. District of Columbia Metropolitan Police Department had a special inspector devoted to this, and he had spent eight years studying the tactics of Operation Rescue. His name, I can even give you the name, Louis Widowski. Okay, for all his expertise, Widowski later testified in court, that was the next year in April, and then in, in August, testified in court that despite the enormous resources that his department had at its disposal, the rescuer's tactics was so successful in blocking the access of the abortionists that it, it, it always disturbed the business there, and in many places, abortionists had to close because they, didn't keep, they couldn't keep up with the tactics. That's how successful they were. Okay, the only thing the police could do was start arresting the rescuers one one by one, but it took too many hours to do. Okay, and eventually it took a whole day to arrest all of them. It was this moment when the arrest started that the pro-aborts waited for to start their chant, specifically aimed at the veterans. You lost in Vietnam, you're losing here. You lost in Vietnam, you're losing here. I think I can safely bet that there is no one here in this room who can even begin to grasp the impact of these words on these people. Perhaps only one person. Keep in mind that these men had met this cult of death before, okay? In the jungles of Indochina, in the ruins of, the Euro of, of, of European cities in World War II. Some had seen whole villages slaughtered or obliterated by Viet Cong for their refusal to join the communists. Some had to fight off an enemy that outnumbered them 10 to 1 with no help coming, okay? 
They fought that cult of death under an oath to protect America. And now they were in the very political heart of that same America. Putting their lives and reputations on the line. Defending the unborn and were arrested and tortured for it. These were men who had taken an oath. And in addition to being arrested and tortured, they had to listen to the mockery of the death cultists. And that was, you lost in Vietnam, you're losing here. Now, our purpose here is not to emphasize the dramatic nature of the situation. I'm sure many of you have had your encounters with a cult of death so far. And I understand that you've had your own, uh, your own you know, moments of being humiliated by the death cultists. Uh, and I know many of you are braver than me. Well, because, and I'm, I'm saying it seriously, because even though I have been back in 1989 on the streets of Eastern Europe when communism was falling, I was only facing one of the beasts in Revelation 13, the ugly beast, the first beast. You are facing today, as we heard from this testimony, also the second beast, the well-groomed, Religious beast, the one that sounds like a lamb, looks like a lamb, speaks about substitutionary atonement and prelapsarianism or postlapsarianism and so on, you know. And if you read Revelation 13, you will see that that second beast is the beast that administers the mark of the beast, not the first beast. It's the second beast, the beast with a bow tie. <laughs> Our purpose is to look at the tactics behind that statement. You are losing. No sane human being, of course, likes to be on the losing side, even if it's the righteous side. There's a reason why loser is a pejorative word. We don't like it. Nobody likes it. Even Christians, we Christians are more, more motivated by the final victory we will have in heaven than by the fact that our cause is a righteous cause. This is our motivation, right? I mean, I, uh, I heard one preacher ask his audience one, once, would you still be on Jesus' side if you knew he'd lose in heaven? And I was like, I'm really glad I don't have to solve this problem in my heart. <laughs> I'm really glad. To those of us, however, who have devoted our lives to an activist cause greater than our precious little egos and comfort, the prospect of being on the losing side is especially humiliating and discouraging. After all, we don't gain anything for ourselves out of the cause anyway. I mean, we can't win the battle for somebody else, and we don't win anything for ourselves. What are we fighting for? So we don't like to lose. But you know... Someone may say, just a feeling. Why worry about it? Whether you lose or not, whether you believe you will lose or not, what difference does it make? If it's just a righteous cause, that's more important than any expectations you may have about the future. Why worry about the issue? It's only a psychological perception. You should be fighting whether you lose or not. And yet we can't do it, right? Apparently, that psychological perception means everything. For victory. 
In any conflict, in any undertaking, your expectations of the future mean everything for what you're doing. In fact, we may say the ultimate test for the success of any battle or any undertaking is the expectation of the participants. The ultimate test. Statistically, statistically and historically, nothing else matters. Neither resources, nor strength, nor numbers. In the final account, the only thing that matters is your faith in the future. We have tons of historical evidence for that, especially from different wars in history. My favorite example, I want to go through a lot of examples, but my favorite example, I'm just going to cut them uh, a little bit. My favorite example is World War II. You know, that big last war that we had, and a lot of us are history buffs. I know every detail I could, I could learn about World War II and um, military strategy, tactics, individual collective psychology, technological developments, and so on. Now, I've been always fascinated with one specific aspect of that war, the battle of the wills. It was a battle of wills more than anything else. And I tell you what, the Nazis knew it from the very beginning. The Nazis knew it from the very beginning, and they played the battle of wills before they played a battle of arms. In fact, uh, there's, uh, if, if you Google and you find the name of Leni Riefenstahl, she was, a, uh, she was a propagandist for Hitler, and her main propaganda movie was called The Triumph of the Will. Because the Germans knew it. That's why they won at the beginning. They started winning at the beginning. It was not just her idea. It was an official part of the Nazi ideology. Germany at the time spent a disproportional amount of, of money uh, and resources in um, targeting its neighbors with propaganda. And what was the main point of that propaganda? When we invade, you will lose. And it worked, apparently, for Germany was able to defeat, at nearly no cost, nations like Poland and France. Now, we today think Poland was a small country, right? Let me tell you this, Poland was a 40 million country, 40 million population. It was not a small country by any means. Okay. Yep. France was about the same population. Almost, they almost defeated Russia, which is certainly not a small country. It's a little bigger than Texas. <laughs> and don't make the mistake to think that these nations were, you know, were, were, were uh, weak in terms of technology. To the contrary, they had bigger armies. They had much better technology than the Germans. In fact, the French, Frank, French tanks were a much more advanced technology than, than anybody else's tanks. And I can tell you, because I'm both a military guy and a history buff, and I can give you all kinds of details. I'm not going to go in there. But they had their superior resources, and yet the only difference was they believed they were going to lose. And guess what? They lost. In full contrast to them stood little Switzerland. Now, what you all don't know is Hitler hated Switzerland with his whole heart. German generals prepared six different strategic plans for invading Switzerland so that they can capture the, the passes over the mountains. Six different plans. To compare, only one plan was needed to defeat, defeat France, only one plan for Poland, 
two plans for Russia, and Norway was taken without any strategic plan. It was just tactical. Okay? And Hitler's, and keep in mind that he, uh, uh, Switzerland had a population of only 4.5 million people, a whole population. The total of German armies was 6 million. And yet, the Hitler's high command decided not to attack. Why? Because as the historian and attorney Stephen Halbrook shows in his book, Target Switzerland, they judged the Swiss nation too tough of a nut to break. Why? The Swiss believed they can never lose. They believed they can never lose. In fact, it was known in Germany that before World War I, the German crown prince went to Switzerland to watch their army's maneuvers. And he was sitting right next to a Swiss colonel and asked him kind of disparagingly, uh, Colonel, what would quarter of a million Swiss soldiers do if half a million German soldiers invaded? The colonel responded, shoot twice and go home. <laughs> The Swiss never allowed comparisons of numbers, resources, or other insignificance factors to have any bearing on their expectations of the future. Hitler's generals, based on that, judged that just taking over Switzerland will cost him two million casualties. And that didn't count the cost of occupation. Small Switzerland. So they decided not to attack. Communists understood the importance of suppressing the enemy's optimism too. Much of the communist propaganda in the second half of the 20th century directed at the populations in the West was specifically designed to create an expectation of doom for their social order in those days. And I, I know because I've been through it. Even at times of rising prosperity and diminishing crime and poverty in the West, Western intellectuals were still looking for that sign that the Western civilization was doomed. Even while communism was 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 uh, was uh, completely uh, uh, completely crashing under its own weight, Western intellectuals believed that the West was going to be doomed against communism. Meanwhile, in the 60s and the 70s, optimism was lost in the communist part of Europe, and eventually the communist governments fell under their own weight. When people tell me today that not much can be done about the situation in the United States today. And why am I so optimistic? My answer is, I saw communism fail. I saw communism fall. And it had all the guns, it had all the means of production, it had all the food in its hands. And it fell. History is full of those examples. The, Roman, the late Roman Empire is another good example. And I probably should cut them off a little bit. Um... But I'll tell you what, you got to read the Roman poet Juvenal to see the pessimism of the late Roman Empire. Now, we think that all these tribes that invaded from the north were, were really numerous. All of them together, all of them together, including the Huns in population, were not more than the population of just one province of the Roman Empire. And the whole Roman Empire was 20 and sometimes 24 provinces. And yet they defeated the empire. Why? 
because the Roman Empire had run out of optimism for the future. If we look at the Crusades, the Crusades started in the 11th century, and at that time, Europe was just a marginal territory on the outskirts of the big Muslim world. The Muslim world outnumbered it. It was bigger, six, it had six times the territory of Christendom and 15 times the population of Christendom. And yet for three centuries, small armies of crusaders, seldom more than three to 5,000 crusaders, would defeat and harass the Muslim world and would sometimes fight battles and win them outnumber 10 to 1. I've seen it on the mission field as well. The funniest example in my experiences would be the work of my missionary friends among the Muslim minorities in Bulgaria. Now let me tell you this, the Muslim community in Bulgaria is about 12% of the population. The Protestant community in Bulgaria is about half percent of the population. And yet several years ago, probably about 10 or 20 years ago, a Muslim religious leader complained on national TV that their community feels besieged by Protestant missionaries. Amen. To be outnumbered by your opponent by 24 to 1 and make him feel like under a siege, how's that for a victory? But history is not the only place where we can look for examples. The Bible from beginning to end contains the same concept of the importance of our historical expectations. In fact, if you carefully read the promises in the Bible, they're all about history and they're all about God's people being given greater and greater power in history provided they stayed faithful to God's covenant. Their enemies, as part of the same promise, will be given faintness of heart. which will sap their energy and strength. Listen to this. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted. And no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is Rahab telling the spies why she decided to switch sides in Joshua 2, 9 through 11. Now notice her, the whole testimony was based on the fact that there was no optimism left in, in the men of Jericho. Women notice these things, by the way. <laughs> They all knew they were doomed. It didn't matter if they were mighty warriors. It didn't matter if they had giants on their side. It didn't matter if they had against them slaves who had never fought before. All that mattered is who believed in victory and who didn't. And she made her choice based on that. As a side issue, you know, every time I think of Rahab, I also think of Salmon, her husband, the guy who married her. You know, he married a woman who had no problem lying to authorities if she believed they were wrong. Wise choice. <laughs> By the way, she's one of the only three women mentioned in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. And one of the other ones, Tamar, did the same thing, lying to a man of authority because he was wrong. Keep that in mind. 
The old covenant was optimistic about Israel, but it had even greater promises about the new covenant. Isaiah was very clear when he spoke of the birth of Christ in uh, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Listen to this. Of, listen to this. Of the increase, what's the word? Increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Amen. No end to that increase. It was supposed to create a new attitude in the people of God, a new psychology of action. So radical was this psychology of action that when Jesus made a statement, uh, that Jesus actually made a statement that sounds so offensive today. I never heard any reformed or any other preacher actually preach on that. Actually, I, I heard charismatic preachers preach on that. Listen to this. From the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Flipping tables. Violence, violent men. Since there was no physical violence by men who were taking the kingdom between John the Baptist and Jesus' statement, he had to do with attitude. And indeed, we see that attitude of the Old Testament expectations in the person of Simeon in Luke 2. When he took the baby Jesus in his arms, his prayer was, Now, Lord, you're releasing your servant to depart in peace. Now, his optimism was still a passive optimism. Keep that in, that in mind. An optimism of expectation. He knew things were going get to get better but he only wait only he only waited for a specific moment in history okay but from there on there was a new horizon and compare this to the violent optimism commanded to the disciples in acts 1 8 you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in jerusalem in all judea and samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth from now on, it's going to be all growth. From now on, it's going to be all growth. No end to it. No end to that increase. This new active optimism is indeed violence compared to the old passive optimism or compared to anything we have today. That's why you're accused of violence. Because these people can't bear your optimism. This is in the Bible. There are no more thresholds, no more discontinuous events in history until the final judgment. There's only increase without end for those who choose to be men of violence. And women are men of violence. Amen. Not even, not one event in the future that will kind of, this is the end of our, all of the future belongs to the people of God now. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 22, I want to read this because not many people know about this verse. Listen to this. First uh, Corinthians three twenty one through twenty two. So let so then let no one boast in man, for all things belong to you. Now listen, all the things that belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Bozdarmerov or American Vision or Chalcedon, or be, all belong to you or the world. Or things present or the future. All things belong to you. The future belongs to you. 
God, therefore, considered it very important to emphasize the point of expectations of the future and that of the future in history, not just future in eternity, but future in history. Okay. The very description of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 ends with the clear promise declared in the Old Testament, repeated multiple times in the New Testament, namely, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. In fact, this is the Old Testament promise most frequently repeated in the New Testament. It is as if God was saying, all these other things are important, don't get me wrong, but let me give you all this most important thing that you should never forget. You are doomed to victory if you stay with me. You can have your ups and downs. Your emotions and moods, you can have any kinds of enemies. I send you strong and weak. You can have favorable, unfavorable circumstances, sunny days, uh, uh, snowstorms. No matter what happens, there, there's going to be one thing that will never, ever, ever change. You are destined to victory in history on earth, period. And you can take all your pessimistic eschatologies and all your pessimistic expectations and moods, file them all in the big round file. I could use French words here. I'm going to use in big round file of history. Throw it out. All you should care about is this. Victory is your normative state. Yes. Why is this so important? Because of the biblical principle, be unto you according to your faith. For those of you who have devoted our lives to the wars of the kingdom, it translates into the following principle. Listen carefully. You never get a victory greater than the one you believe in. You may get something less, but you never get something more. You never get a victory greater than the one you believe in. When you believe you will lose, you will surely lose. Yeah. Okay. This in any conflict, you have two important things to do. First, make sure all you and your troops believe in victory. Not just cautiously accept the possibility that there, perhaps under certain favorable circumstances, maybe, perhaps, you know, something like victory. No, <laughs> but we will see, you know. No, the faith in victory for your cause must be unconditional, arrogant, unapologetic faith. Amen. And second, make your enemy believe in his defeat. Yeah. Because making your enemy believe in his defeat is a sure victory for you. Uh -huh. Can people continue to fight if they don't believe in victory? If they have lost their optimism and confidence? Sure, they can continue fighting. Until the first hurdle. Okay, the difference between optimism and pessimism is not in just your intellectual propositions. It is when you meet the first challenge. The pessimist response would be, I knew it would come to that. Game over, guys. Let's go. Let's go home. The optimist response would be, no, this is not normal. I know I can do better. Let me find a way to overcome this. The pessimist is not expected to return to the battlefield. The optimist will always be there. It is for this reason we Christian reconstructionists. And let me tell you this. I was asked before I came here, are you going to try to convert her to convert us to Christian reconstruction? 
my answer was, you're, you're already there. <laughs> the only thing I want to do is lay a foundation for you. Because when you fall, you want a sure foundation to stand up back on your feet and fight. I can't teach you how to fight. I mean, you guys know it better than I do. But I want to make sure that there is below you a foundation that you can step on. Uh-oh. Okay. I can't see now. I like the bottom. What do they do? What happened there? You can overcome it. Light shines in the darkness. <laughs> I did it on the other side. <laughs> it's for this reason we Christian reconstructionists have emphasized the epistemology, the, the, I'm sorry, the eschatology of postmillennialism. Not because we want to argue about times and events and interpretations of events and about genealogies and so on. Because we can clearly see that the eschatologies of defeat in the modern churches have led to the situation we have today. You never gain a victory greater than the one you believe in. When you don't believe in victory, you only get defeat. And isn't it ironic that the same evangelicals who in the past branded us as triumphalists these days fell under the spell of Donald Trump who promised them some sort of victory except that it's a political victory. So they like victory too. In all my respect to Operation Rescue and to the heroes who fought in these early battles in the war against murder of unborn children, I always noticed one thing in the histories, in the stories of all my friends. They were deeply pessimistic about the future. In a short time, Operation Rescue achieved victories that no one could ever expect them to achieve against the machine of the government and of the apostate churches. Abortuaries were closed in many cities because the baby murderers just couldn't bear the pressure. And the cops were in a quandary of what to do with the rescuers. Arrest didn't help. Brutality and torture didn't help. Special tactics didn't help. When rescuers descended on an abortuary, it was done for. It would close. Period. It couldn't work. If not right away, at least after some time. And yet... My friends always expected that that day was coming when the cult of death will find a way to deal a final blow on Operation Rescue. They knew it was coming. They knew that the final day of the operation was coming. Every time I heard them talking, they were kind of expecting that eventually the government will find a way to deal with them. And the enemy knew about that deep essential pessimism and used it to its advantage. You lost in Vietnam, you're losing here. You lost in Vietnam, you're losing here. In the final account, it was a battle of wills or a battle of faith in the future. And for all the courage of Operation Rescue, this is what, where I believe where they failed. Eventually, when Planned Parenthood and the NOW started their court trials against the leadership of the Operation Rescue, the troops disbanded.
The day of judgment that they expected had come. Operation Rescue have always viewed themselves as rather what in military terms we call forlorn hope troops. For those of you who are not familiar with the military language, these are troops who are sent ahead of the main body to take the leading part in the military operation, draw fire on themselves, and thus open opportunities for the main troops to advance. It had nothing to do with hope. It had to do with high casualties. Unfortunately, the Operation Rescue also believed that they are really forlorn hope. And I could hear it in their way of speaking. And they built their strategy and tactics around it, unfortunately. I hope you all can see why this is so important to us today. Y'all have taken an enemy who at the moment is immeasurably more powerful and better entrenched than you are. And the funny thing is you are on the attacking side. Normally, that's right. <laughs> the enemy has billions of dollars on its side. It has, it has hundreds of lawyers, thousands of people who profit from the industry. You have no resources to match, no experience to match, no legal power to match. In this, correct. In this situation, you better expect to hear a chant one day, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna chant it now so that you hear it from me, and you don't hear it from the enemy. When you hear it from the enemy, be prepared for it. And this is: you lost with Operation Rescue, you will lose with AHA. You will hear it not only from the pro boards; you will hear it from the established church and celebrities. <laughs> Those who have built their careers and reputations avoiding fighting for controversial causes. These people, after all, are not in the ministry industrial complex to sacrifice, but to build their own small empires. Bring it. They're brands of product. You're their competitor, at least that's how they view you. Both the church celebrities and the pagan pro boards will chant in your ears, you lost with Operation Rescue, you will lose with AJ. Don't be dismayed, set your face like a flint and hear these words from me again, because you'll hear them on the battlefield. You lost with Operation Rescue, you will lose with AHA. Your answer will start here, now, and it will be that you will firmly resolve in your heart that no matter what your eyes tell you, the Word of God tells you that history has been and will always be a clear revelation of the victory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that his kingdom is destined to increase always in all circumstances. Therefore, applying it to your particular situation, you will believe in nothing less than a complete, total, and final abolition of abortion. In the Amen. You will refuse to entertain a single thought that maybe it's not the time yet. Yeah. And you will refuse to accept any defeat as the final word on this issue. Every defeat is only a teaching device. Mm -hmm. There's no word for participation here. <laughs> the only acceptable outcome, the one that will send you back home, is the abolition of abortion. You can believe it will be achieved because the future belongs to you, not to the cult of death. And then, as you go there to face the beast again, 
and the beast tells you in your face that you lost with Operation Rescue, you will lose with AHA, your answer to it will be. I may suffer a few small defeats, but after every defeat, I'll be back here again, stronger than ever, more knowledgeable than ever, and I will continue to look for ways to undermine your power. You beast will run out of energy before I do. You are doomed to defeat. Amen. And may the God of peace grant us the courage and the faith to wage his war without any faintness of heart. Amen. 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 Reconstructionist Radio War Room production. Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Please visit bojidarmarinov.com and reconstructionistradio.com forward slash Acts to the Root. <laughs>